Welcome, fellow brave believers. This is Kingdom Cast. I'm Sean Griffin, and you're watching this on Kingdom of Context, or possibly on our secondary channel, Kingdom Cast. So we want to thank you for joining us tonight. Tonight we're going to be talking about the Garden of Eden and how it actually becomes the New Jerusalem. So there's several scriptures that actually help us see the process from start to finish, because I've always said there's a character in scripture that people always overlook, and that is the woman. That is Mother Jerusalem, as Paul talks about in Galatians 4.26. That is Zion. That is, um, you know, the bride. And so many people have mistakenly taught that the bride is the actual body of believers while completely overlooking all the descriptions about what Revelation 21 actually calls the bride, which is the New Jerusalem. And the New Jerusalem was not is not something that just appears in the New Testament. It's always been there. And we're going to show you that tonight. So thank you for joining us, everyone. If you haven't already, please subscribe. Um, if this blesses you, please share it on your social medias. That's how we get around the censorship and the algorithm. Um, so if anything in this video blesses you, go ahead and share it on your social medias. And uh, that helps other people be blessed by it as well faster because YouTube doesn't always recommend our videos. Um, in addition, we, we want to thank everyone that is constantly supporting us with encouraging letters and comments. Um, if uh, some people even attach, you know, financial contribution to those as well. We have we have options down below. If you're not a patron member already, please consider that. That's in the options below. People also uh, bless us through other means. Those are all listed down in the video description. So everyone that already has and that continually does on a monthly place on a monthly basis, we just want to really give a heartfelt thank you. Lindsay and I are greatly appreciative. It's really helping us do what we're doing by putting out so much content every week. Uh, that's what makes it possible. So many of you have, have followed us for the last two and a half years on this journey as we started Kingdom of Context. And you remember when like I was putting out a um, little bitty videos, little morning cup of contexts, and I was putting out, uh, we started doing the, the kingdom portions and the honor of kings. And um, it, it was a new habit that I was building, but all those preload, preloaded and pre-made videos were taking forever to film and edit and upload and put all the graphics in that I needed because my biggest thing was I didn't want to just talk with opinion when I'm talking about the Bible. I always wanted to show you scriptures. So that's why until I was able to come across software that's appropriate for what we do so that I can put scriptures on screen, as you've already seen through all these previous podcasts, that's helped me bring out a little bit more content as well because it helps skip some of the editing. But then I still got to take the time to prepare all the scriptures that I'm going to share and those of you who support us, you guys have made that possible. So we just huge thank you to you. Um, it's uh, it's just I feel honored that you guys would, uh, are getting stuff out. You're being blessed by what we're talking about and explaining from Scripture. Hopefully, it's it's being presented in a way that it's bite sized and able to be taken to friends and family and explained. So you guys are a true blessing. Thank you. Um, also, go subscribe to Kingdom Cast if you haven't already, because that's our secondary channel. And in the future, these podcasts are going to be solely. Uh, solely uh, streamed on that secondary channel or, you know, at least until lighthouse comes out. But at the, at, for the moment now, for the next couple of months, um, go sign up for our secondary channel kingdom cast and uh, help us grow that one as well, because we're going to be doing these podcasts just on that channel. I want to uh, say hello to some of the people that already showed up in the chat. we got a, a lot of people in the chat already. Nathan Lyles, welcome. Stephen Schofield, welcome. Earl Rogers, James Russell. Davey Shofar, The Great Deception. Melissa, James uh, James Russell, already said your name. AC, Lois, Janet S, 
James Russell and Bill Craddock, Mr. Bear, uh, Scott McVicker. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for coming back. Uh, Jesse, Miss Peggy D's back. Juliet Talcible. I think I said that right. Juliet, Juliet, I don't think I'm saying this right. Juliet, Juliet Talcible. Um, Lynette Moody, Whittle King, Stephen Belk, Vicki Lott. Welcome back, everyone. David Shears back. Welcome. Master Soup, Kingdom Truther, Paula Disciple, Karen M., Latoya Christie, Siogo Montiel, Sean M., West Plays Music is back. Welcome, everybody. Christina B., Believe in a Scene, T. Zebra, Amy Emerson 73, The Line Within Us, James Carter. Welcome, everyone. And Emmanuel Sainzer. I think I said that right. Sainzer. Angelo, Kelly J., there's more names I probably missed, but I, I'm sorry if I missed your name, guys, but thank you for being here and contributing. As always, we do a Q&A at the end of this broadcast, so uh, hold your questions till then, but when you're ready to ask your question, turn your caps lock on so that every letter in your question is capitalized. That way, our moderators and myself, we can see it quickly because sometimes the chat moves quickly and we miss your question. So that's how, that's how you get your question answered better is if you put it in all capitalization. But hold those questions till I finish with some of these scriptures here that we're going to review. That way, um, I have a better chance of seeing it. All right, guys, thanks for being here. And let's jump right into it. The reason why I titled this The Kingdom of the Garden is because that's what it is. I don't think a lot of people realize that when they're studying scripture. They have this traditional idea of the Garden of Eden being just like this little, you know, um, this little area of nice trees and the animals hanging out. And, you know, you've seen the stereotypical pictures and they think that the, the garden of Eden was just this, just this certain specific spot on the earth, but that's not what scripture tells us. So when, when scripture in Genesis and Jubilees, other place talk about how the earth was created. And then after day uh, on day six, man was created. And then man was placed inside the garden that was Eden in Eden. Genesis doesn't tell you when Eden or the garden that's placed inside Eden. It's two separate concepts. The land area is called Eden, but there was a garden placed inside Eden. And scripture doesn't tell you when that happens. Uh, excuse me, let me take that back. Genesis in the American Canon 66 does not tell you when that happens, but there used to be books in our Bible in America that did tell us when these happened, they were removed. It's unfortunate. Uh, other canons around the world have books that tell us when this happened. And in America, we've been at a disadvantage because the, the Bible that we now have in the last 100, 140 years has that information removed from it. So guess what, guys? I got the information for you tonight. I'm going to show you. We'll put it on screen for you so you can test it. All right. Um, let's jump right into it. So this is just a quick verse. Uh, Psalm 68, 15, the mountain of God's a rich mountain, a swelling mountain. It's a rich mountain. It's from the Septuagint translation because the mountain of God is what we're going to be talking about tonight. Did you guys know that the Garden of Eden included a mountain? Did you guys know that? We'll go over it tonight. Genesis 2, 8 through 17. This is the traditional narrative most of us heard. So we'll start here and then we'll branch out as we go and see how other descriptions and other scriptural books help clarify the information for us. Verse 8, it says, The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. Okay, so right off the bat, hopefully you understand that these are two separate concepts. The garden is its own thing. In fact, if you actually look up the word in the Hebrew that's being used here for the word garden, it'll show you that it's actually a, considered a walled off place. 
So it's not just an area. It's not just like you walk out behind your house and there's a big grassy area with some nice orchard trees. It's not like that. It was an actual walled off place. That's why the angel was set to guard about it all around it so they couldn't get back in. It was an actual place. But guess what? After the land of the earth was dried and created and every, all of creation was finished after six days, the garden, or I should say, we're going to go into when the garden was placed in Eden. But after the land was created, then the garden was placed in Eden. And we're going to go over the scriptures that tell us that, that important information. So then we hopefully can, that's the first biggest misconception I hope that we can jump past as we're going through these fundamental ideas. The garden is different from the land that it was placed in. Two separate entities. I know we generically refer to it as the Garden of Eden, but it's talking about two separate concepts. There's a land area called Eden, and there's a garden, a walled-off place that was that was put inside that garden. So it goes on to say, and there he, that's Yahweh, placed the man whom he had formed on the out of the ground. The Lord God caused to grow every tree that's pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to the water to water the garden. So did you guys catch that? There's a river that flowed out of Eden, out of the land area of Eden, to water the garden. There's a there's a river flowed out of the geographical area the garden was put in. And the river comes to the garden to water the garden. So any of you that are taking notes, you're going to want to take down that note when we go over the first book of Adam and Eve on the episode premiere of season three of Honor of Kings. So this matters. I don't have any good pictures for you right now, but this matters. There's a, there's a land area that a garden was placed inside of, and then there was a river in that land area outside of that garden that flowed to that garden to water that garden. All right, let's get back to the to real quick. Now, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows from the whole land of Havala, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. And the bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. This is the, this. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. You guys might remember as we studied Jubilees in the past, Adam wasn't created inside the garden. He was created outside the garden and put inside the garden after his creation, specifically 40 days after his creation, according to the law of God. Then the Lord took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat it, you will surely die. Okay, many of us are familiar with this passage, but let's keep going. Jubilees 2, 5 through 8, we get some better descriptions, more descriptions, of the same creation process that happened in Genesis 1. The same ideas are covered in Jubilees chapter 2. And then also in Jubilees chapter 3, we get the same ideas of Adam being put into the garden, like we saw briefly summarized in Genesis 2. But here in Jubilees 2, 5 and 8, it tells us when the garden was actually put inside the land of Eden. In verse 5, it says, And on the third day he commanded the waters to pass off from the face of the whole earth into one place, and the dry land to appear. And the waters did so as he commanded them. And they retired from off the face of the earth into one place outside of this firmament, and the dry land appeared. And on that day he created for them all the seas according to their separate gathering places, and all the rivers, and all the gatherings of the waters, and the mountains, and on the earth, and all the lakes, and all the dew of the earth, and the seed which is sown, all sprouting things, fruit-bearing trees, trees of the wood, and the Garden of Eden 
in Eden and all plants after their kind. These four works God created on the third day. So we have some allusions here to the garden in Eden. The garden of Eden was created on the third day. If we keep going to second Baruch chapter four, two through six, it's mentioned again. And this is Yahweh speaking through an angel to the prophet Baruch. Remember guys, Baruch was the uh, priest and scribe of Jeremiah of the prophet Jeremiah. Baruch's also considered a prophet as well. Um, we in the American canon of 66, we see Baruch uh, spoken of and mentioned in Jeremiah 35 and several other chapters. The book of Second Baruch, it's also known sometimes as the Apocalypse of Baruch, and it used to be in your Bibles. So everyone who is watching this in the United States, the Bible that you have that you bought from a United States bookstore used to have the book of Baruch in it, and people thought it was a part of Scripture. That was 140 years ago before these two dudes that should have never had the authority to change the books in the Bible started changing the books in the Bible. So you have to do your research on it, but we cover it in season one of Arnor Kings about some of the back history of Baruch. But second Baruch four, two through six, do you think that this place is that city of which I said on the palm of my hands of engraving you? This building that's now built in your midst is not that which is revealed with me. So a little bit of context to the setting of this conversation. Baruch is concerned because the Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians are invading Judah and they're about to invade Jerusalem and destroy it. People are being taken into exile. He's one of the one of the priests and some other people that are like, you know, last attempt to guard the temple as much as possible. So he's standing in the temple or he's being shown the temple in this in this conversation with this angel. And the father is trying to, you know, through them through the agency of this angel, the father's trying to communicate this message to Baruch. It's okay, you can relax. This place you're standing, this building, this Solomon's temple that you're standing in, this isn't the place. And this is why he's trying to say, this isn't the one, the city of which I said, on the palms of my hands of engraving you. We're going to go over that verse in Isaiah in a few minutes, okay? He's like, this building that's built in your midst, which is the Solomon's temple, is not the one that's revealed with me. Why was he say that is, which is revealed with me? Because no one in Baruch's day could see it. Why? Because it's not on the ground anymore. It's the one that comes through the, through the ferment, the new Jerusalem. When Yeshua comes, he brings the city with him. So for all of you who may want extra verses to support the idea that the millennial reign, the new Jerusalem is on the ground at the start of the millennial reign, here's one right here. When Yeshua returns in the agency of his father to rule and reign as king and high priest, he's coming back with the massive city, guys. And this is what Yeshua, excuse me, this is what Yahweh is speaking and explaining to Baruch. And he says, and that which... And he's talking about this city, that which was prepared beforehand here from the time when I took counsel to make paradise and showed Adam before he sinned. But when he transgressed the commandment, it was removed from him as also paradise. So the new Jerusalem is metaphorically referred to in very, in a lot of different phrases. The mountain of God is one of them. Um, uh, Mother Jerusalem, Zion. Um, the paradise, there's a, there's a whole bunch of different words we see used to describe the New Jerusalem. Well, inside this massive land area, there are structures, and there's a temple. And this is what the Father is referring to as he's trying to calm Baruch's fears and saying, look, you know, this temple that's been prophesied to be destroyed that you're standing in, the one that Nebuchadnezzar is sieging right now, I know you're afraid. It's okay. This isn't the one. Don't worry about this one. The one that I'm going to bring down, no one ever could fight. We're going to go over that in Isaiah 54. The one that he's going to bring down, the, the New Jerusalem and the temple and the mountains and all the land and river and trees and habitations inside that place, no one can take this. No one can No one can overcome it. No one can siege it. And he's talking about 
both the temple and paradise, which was showed to Adam before Adam transgressed and was removed from it. We all know the story, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve transgress and they're kicked out in Genesis 3, 24. They're taken back out of, out of the garden that was in Eden and they're taken back to the land of their creation. So he then goes on in uh, verse five and six to say, and after these things, I showed it to my servant Abraham by night among the portions of the victims. Guys, that's Genesis 15. And again, also I showed it to Moses on Mount Sinai when I showed to the likeness of the tabernacle and all its vessels. Guys, that's Hebrews chapter 11. Verses, uh, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. And also it's in Exodus 26, 27, and 28, where he was seeing a vision of the temple inside the New Jerusalem, in the heavenly temple, well, inside the, the land area, if I should say it like this, the land area of New Jerusalem. He's seeing the, the eternal temple that's going to come down with the New Jerusalem. He's seeing that in his vision on Mount Sinai, and that's what he's patterning the furniture and the things of the temple that he and, and Aaron constructed. That's what he's patterning it after. And this is what Hebrews 8, 1 through 5 explains. And then he says, at last, he says, and now behold, it, that means the city and paradise, is preserved with me, as he says, as, as also paradise is. So in the days of Baruch, which is in the days of Jeremiah, which is in the days about 683 BC-ish, depends on historians, but it depends on the time. It's in the times of the southern kingdom being overcome by the Babylonians and and. Uh, the southern house of Judah and all of its inhabitants being taken off into exile. During that time, the father in heaven is telling Baruch at the Garden of Eden and also this, this temple inside of it is with him above the firmament. So we'll keep moving, okay? Isaiah 49, 14 through 16. Remember, Zion is an important word to notice in the Old Testament. He says, but Zion said, this is Zion talking to Yahweh. In the prophecy of Isaiah. But Zion said, The Lord's forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her? Well, by, and I'm going to stop right there because then the, the next verse is a reply from the Lord, from Yahweh. But listen to this first complaint by Zion. It says, The Lord's forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Why would a city say that? This is in the days of Isaiah, guys. This is Hezekiah hasn't even shown up yet. Josiah has not shown up. This is 120 years before the Babylonians invade. This is when they were still a northern and southern house, and there was, you know, the, the, the Syrian kingdom was about to be invaded and scattered. But the temple in Jerusalem that most people think is what is what is Zion when they see it in the Old Testament, they're mistaken. The temple in Jerusalem was not invaded yet, it's not been forsaken, has not been forgotten. And the, the further descriptors of that whole chapter also let us know that this is it's talking about Zion, the New Jerusalem, and the resurrection. And then the Lord responds to this complaint, says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Uh, obviously, it's a rhetorical question. That's a no. I always, I always like to joke and say, like, Yahweh's great at rhetorical questions. He is, you know, all pun intended, he's the God of rhetorical questions. Because he just he he asks them everywhere in, in the Old Testament. He says, even these may forget, saying, even a woman may forget about her own child, but I will not forget you. Behold, I've inscribed you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. So just in case you you doubted that this verse is about the New Jerusalem, I just showed you the the new the second Baruch passage where he says this place that you're standing in, Baruch, the Solomon's Temple, this is not the one that I said I've, I've I, on the palms of my hands I've engraven you. Because this second Baruch moment is happening 100 plus years after the days of Isaiah. So 100 years before Baruch, during the days of Isaiah, 
is where we get this actual phrase where the father says, Zion, I've engraven you on the palm of my hands. It's talking about the new Jerusalem. It's talking about the one above. In 2 Ezra chapter 6, 1-4, through 4, it goes on to expound a little further about the foundations of paradise when they were laid. And he said unto me in the beginning when the earth was made, before the borders of the world stood, <laughs> this is on day one, right? Because in the beginning on day one, the earth was made, but yet the firmament that was not made, which are the borders of it, that's on day two. He says, or ever the winds blew, right? Because remember, it was still filled with water. Before thundered and lightning, because the water had not receded yet there's day three hadn't happened yet or ever the foundations of paradise were laid that also happens on day three that's paradise that's the garden of eden that's the foundations of it were set down into the earth that was dried out before the fair flowers were seen or ever the immovable powers were established before the innumerable multitude of angels were gathered together or ever the heights of the air were lifted up before the measures of the firmament were named or the chimneys in zion were hot see so we got this is a you have to read the rest of the chapter but this is him explaining some unique stuff to ezra the prophet and priest ezra and he's given a comparison about before all this stuff even happened but he gives you a timing qualifier of paradise calling it paradise just like second baruch and talks about when its foundations were laid which as we read from jubilees is on day three we go on to psalm 87 one through three and it talks about those same foundations but now it adds a description of the holy mountains and it says his foundations are in the holy mountains. We also see this in 1 Enoch 24 and 25. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. Now we get a direct qualifier with the holy mountains, the foundations, and the word Zion more than all the tabernacles of Jacob. Now it's even literally contrasting the one on the ground among Israel and saying this is not the one because the Lord loves the gates of Zion. That's the kingdom of the garden. His foundations are in the holy mountains. Glorious things have, I sp have been spoken of you, O city of God. Pause. He's not talking about the land-based Jerusalem that was called virgin daughter Jerusalem at times. And sometimes it was not called virgin because it was called harlotress or idolatrous. But that's why you see this language in, in the prophets where it calls the ground-based Jerusalem daughter Jerusalem. Whereas Paul in Galatians 4.26 would refer to the new Jerusalem above as mother Jerusalem. So here in Psalm 87, 1 through 3, his foundations are in the holy mountains. Paradise is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. The gates? It's got gates. That's right, because the word garden is a walled-off structure. This is what the angel was sent to guard in Genesis 3, so Adam couldn't find the way back to the tree of life. It's a real place. It has has a walled-off structure. And it was still on the ground after Adam and Eve kicked out. And we're going to answer the question of where did it go? How long was it on the ground? It's also called the city of God in that passage. 11, Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, and also verse 16, we see that Abraham did know about this, just like was told to us from 2nd Baruch, right? Where he said, I even showed it to Abraham at night by the portions of the victims, that Genesis 15 moment. This is where this information comes from in Hebrews 11, and we're actually going to read about that moment here in just a second. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, and verse 16. It says, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as a foreigner in the land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, 
whose architect and builder is God. Do you guys see how all these words are coming together? But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one because Abraham was sojourning in that land. He knew that was not the land, the, the, the land of his day where the Canaanites lived that he had to interact with and the Hittites and the Amorites. That was not that, you know, those pathetic kingdoms of stone was not the ones that he was going to inherit, even though the region, he knew the promise in Genesis 15 that he was going to be given from the Nile to the Euphrates, that entire region. That's why he left on the other side of the Euphrates and crossed the Euphrates to come into the land that he was to inherit, as it says here. But he, he knew that was not the place, right? He, because it tells us he was looking for a city. He was looking for a heavenly country. That means one that's in heaven. It's coming down to that place, that, that geographical place that he's promised. It says, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So if we go on here in Apocalypse of Abraham 21, verse 6, we see this is where this Adam actually saw the city of God. But yet, guess what? It calls it the Garden of Eden. And I saw there the Garden of Eden and its fruits and the source and the river flowing from it and its trees and their flowering, making fruits. And I saw men doing justice in it, their food and their rest. Now, as a quick qualifier, in case any of you are paying real good attention here, the vision that he's seeing here is not the Garden of Eden from the past, but it's the one from the future with the river of life flowing out of it, as we also see in Ezekiel 47, 12 and Revelation 22, 1 through 3. So he's not seeing the past Garden of Eden. He's seeing the future Garden of Eden where the resurrected saints are already inside and it's been improved. And we're going to go over its interior renovation right now. So if we keep we keep going here, let's look at 2nd Ezra 2 again. This is going to be verses 11 through 13 of that chapter. It says, Their glory also will I take unto me and give these the everlasting tabernacles, which I prepared for them. They shall have the tree of life for an ointment of sweet savor. They shall neither labor nor be weary. Go, and you shall receive. Pray for a few days unto you that, you may, that they may be shortened. The kingdom is already prepared for you. Watch. How interesting. This kingdom, this city, the tree of life, we get all the qualifiers for paradise. It's all together. The Father's been talking about this all throughout the prophets this whole time. It is a huge character in the Bible that people overlook. It's the bride. Isaiah 54, 1-5. Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. As a real quick, without going into a whole separate study tonight right now, as a real quick breakdown of this first verse, the barren woman, it's the Garden of Eden, Zion, Mother Jerusalem. Remember, Adam and Eve were not born inside her. They were not born because of her. They were born outside of her to live on the earth. She was not intended to have them forever. She's considered the barren one, one who's born no child. The one that's married, the one that's in covenant, is the ground-based Jerusalem, whom she has, Her at the, the end result will be that the one who did not travail, the one who did not birth children, uh, children were not birthed directly to be in her forever. They will be birthed to be in her forever. And this is the first resurrection. This is why you're called sons and daughters of the kingdom. This is why you are in Isaiah 62, 4 and 5. It says, your Elohim, your God will marry you and your sons and daughters will marry you, meaning they'll come into covenant with you. Talking specifically to the new Jerusalem, Zion. 
So that's why it's talking about there will be a point when she is married, quote unquote, entered into covenant with with uh, children, sons and daughters. But to this point, she hasn't. Well, I t- I, yeah, I take that back. Yeshua was the first fruits, the first resurrection, but Yeshua wasn't born yet in the days of Isaiah. So at this point in the days of Isaiah, Zion above, who's above the firmament, used to be on the ground, is without children, so to speak. That's why she's called the barren woman that's born no children. But the ground-based Jerusalem has lots of children because that's it's part of the kingdom of the promise of the Israel, the covenant, right? Applied to man who's born on the earth, man who's born of mortal flesh, right? But the ones that are born in the resurrection are given bodies designed to live eternally in the new Jerusalem. But it has to, but there's a problem. And this is what it tries to address in the following verses. It says, enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtains of your dwellings, spare not, lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. Do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced, but you will forget the shame of your youth. Why should she feel shame in her youth, guys? See, just more qualifiers, by the way, that we're not talking about the ground-based Jerusalem. And this is not talking about the church. It's not talking about the Ecclesia or the saints of the Old Testament or the New. This is specifically talking to Zion. And we're going to go on. It's going to explain it in greater depth. She felt shame in her youth because the person that was put, the inhabitants that were put into her were kicked out, even all the animals. The detail about the animals is in Jubilee 3. I think it's verse 27. So... You, this is why she's barren right now. She's without anyone. She's been taken away and preserved, as Second uh, Second Baruch talked about, as paradise, preserved with the Father. She's taken to his domain, the kingdom of heaven above. It says, but she needs to stretch out and become bigger. Because originally, the animals and Adam and Eve and the angels that were there helping them, they lived inside. But at the first resurrection, you're going to have hundreds of millions, if not maybe a billion people, need to come in to inherit her. This is the promise of the covenant. It's part of the gospel of the kingdom. She is the kingdom. So therefore, she needs to be bigger. It says, fear not, for you will not be put to shame, and do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced, but you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Who is called the God of all the earth. Guys, this is an Old Testament mention of the of the Son, by the way. <laughs> so if we go on to chap, um, same chapter, verses 6 through 10, it says, For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she's rejected. That's exactly how the garden was, treat, was treated. No one could live in her. She was rejected. Um, and I, yes, I've talked about how Enoch went in and lived with her for a time, but as far as the reason she was she was uh, put on the earth for Adam and Eve to be put inside her original um, occupants. They were kicked out, as you know, and and after um, Enoch died, she's she's still barren. People don't live in her the same. It's not the whole purpose is not being fulfilled, right? It says in an outburst of anger. I'm sorry, I, I skipped a line. It says like a wife forsaken and grieving spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she's rejected. Says your God, for a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger. I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Many people may be asking, what, wait, wait, what outburst of anger? What happened? When was he mad at her? Well, he tells you with this 
this, this inference right here. It says, for this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. So I've sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor I will rebuke you. For the mountains may be moved and the hills may be shaken, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. My covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. So people are asking, wait a minute. So when did the Garden of Eden that was guarded by that angel in Genesis 3, when did it leave the earth? And I mean, or is it still there? No, it's not still there. It literally was taken off the ground, just like it was originally planted in the ground. It was a time when it was taken off the ground. And I'm putting forward that these descriptions here explain to us that it was during the flood of Noah. That's why it was such a huge moment. It goes on in verses 11 through 15 in the same chapter. It says, Oh, afflicted one, talking about Zion, talking about the woman, right? Oh, afflicted one, storm tossed, not comforted. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony and your foundations I will lay in sapphires. Why did he just call her afflicted and storm tossed? Right after he said, this is like the days of Noah, I won't have compassion on you again. Right after he said he had an outburst of anger. Because she went through the flood, in my opinion, and she's she's take, that was the moment she was taken off the earth. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of crystal and your entire wall of precious stones. All your sons will be taught of the Lord and the well-being of your sons will be great. In righteousness, you'll be established. You will be far from oppression for you will not fear and from terror for it will not come near you. If anyone fiercely assails you, it will not be from me. Whoever assails you will fall because of you. Guys, we see this, this uh, promise to Zion fulfilled in Revelation 20, 7 through 10. When Satan gets out of the hole in the ground after a thousand years and goes and deceives the, the nations as much as he can and then brings a large group of people to attack the beloved city, that beloved city is the New Jerusalem, which is who's being spoken to, who is being spoken to right here in Isaiah 54, 14 and 15. And the father is promising Zion, the woman, the bride, the former Garden of Eden that will be the New Jerusalem is promising you if anyone attacks you, you won't have to fear. In fact, if anyone even attacks you, they won't fall because I did anything to defend you or, or I didn't attack the people attacking you. In fact, if anyone falls, it will be because of you, meaning the city can defend itself, which is a novel idea that no other city in history has ever been able to right? And the city would always need its occupants or its inhabitants to defend itself, but not the New Jerusalem. Because it is, in my opinion, it's it's like it's its own city. It's a pure manifestation of the spirit of God, but it's a, it's basically able to defend itself, as we see in Revelation seven, uh, Revelation, Revelation twenty seven through ten. Satan and the armies that try to attack it, fire comes down from heaven, which is what? What's that word in in Hebrew? The firmament. It's the rakia. Fire comes down from the firmament and destroys all the people trying to attack the New Jerusalem. Where does the New Jerusalem come down from? From through the firmament. Literally in Matthew, the book of Matthew, guys, the, the the New Jerusalem, the former Garden of Eden, is spoken about everywhere in the book of Matthew. It's called the kingdom of heaven. So just like in Genesis 2, Jubilees 2, 2 Ezra 6, 2 Ezra 2, just like in, in these all these other descriptions of when the garden on day three was placed in the in the realm where we live in earth through the ferment it was taken back to the ferment because it's an extension literally an extension physical 
structural extension of the firmament. And in my opinion, it's made of the same materials, which is why I would mention that it I'll lay your foundations in sapphires. Which is why I would have the power to create its own outburst of fire if it wanted to and destroy whoever's attacking it. You're literally attacking the kingdom of the firmament. That's what the word heaven means, firmament. This, would, this, this is what the, the Garden of Eden is called the kingdom of God. It was the kingdom that was already prepared, as you read from 2nd Ezra 2. It's the paradise. It's, it's the Father's house. It's the mountain of the Lord. It's this entire kingdom, but it's, it's enclosed with the same, the same structure that's over our heads that he made all that structure of at a day one. So on day three, he puts its foundations down to where we are. So the point is what I'm saying, guys, from the very beginning, the father connected with us, literally connected with us. He took his kingdom, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of the firmament, dropped it down to the earth where we were created. He literally connected with us. But then at the flood, a huge event, that's why it's such a big event in the Bible, it's removed, destined to come back. And, and we'll read those verses here in a minute. So that's why it's talking about this. All of Isaiah 54 is about Zion. It's not about the church. I, that's a huge, huge chapter taken out of context because people have always overlooked the New Jerusalem in the Old Testament because they don't know what the, the language that they're looking at, the words that are being described for it. So hopefully this video will help you tonight. We get its direct mention of when it's coming back, and it's even called the bride before we get to the book of Revelation. And it's in also in 2 Ezra chapter 7. Let's read this entire passage, verses 19 through 27. He says, And he said unto me, There is no judge above God, and none that has understanding above the highest. For there be many that perish in this life, because they despise the law of God that is set before them. For God has given straight commandment to such as came, meaning everyone that's born, what they should do to live, even as they came, and what they should do to observe to observe to avoid punishment. Nevertheless, they were not obedient unto him, but spoke against him and imagined vain things, and deceived themselves by their wicked deeds, and said of the Most High that he is not. Isn't that hilarious, guys? Second Ezra is even dealing with atheists back in his day. They were like, yeah, God's not alive. <laughs> Why should we follow his behavior, his law? It's amazing. It's, it's time. It's a, it's a long-standing denial of the creator, this atheist movement. It's not a new thing. And he knew not his way and knew not his ways, but his law have they despised and denied his covenants in his statutes. Have they not been faithful, have not performed his works? That's his behavior. And therefore Ezra's for the empty are empty things and for the full are the full things. Behold, the time shall come that these tokens, which I've told you shall come to pass and the bride shall appear. And she coming forth shall be seen that now is withdrawn from the earth. And whosoever is delivered from the force of evil shall see my wonders. That's those who participate in the first resurrection shall see his wonders, right? This is the, the, the inherited, the land of our inheritance, the bride, which is now withdrawn from the earth, but shall come forth. So this is why we have Revelation 21. 9 through 10, calling the New Jerusalem a city of God, the same one Abraham looked for, 
and saying it's coming down out of the ferment, out of heaven, and that it's also being called a great and high mountain, and that it's called the New Jerusalem. And it's also called the bride, verse 9 and 10. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Remember what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 15, where he was like the, the first Adam, he transgressed, and but we have the second Adam. He's a life-giving spirit. That's in Yeshua. That's why he's going to inherit what Adam lost. But this land has been made bigger since Adam lost it to accommodate for all of Israel who makes it in the first resurrection. And more, by the way, but that's another study. And also there's an outer area for the for the nations, but that's another study. But the point is it had to be made bigger intentionally. This is why, in my opinion, from a logical and structural standpoint, that's why the firmament has to be rolled back like a scroll when it comes back. And there's a huge earthquake and there's a huge moment of disruption because it's not the small garden that was took up. Even though the small garden had a mountain and a temple and a city inside and angelic places to live and all this other still we're talking like 1500 miles squares is much 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 more massive than say maybe something that was 20 miles squared you know or something even maybe even 100 miles squared 1500 miles squared is much much more massive so that the garden originally was small but still had all these features inside of it it's considered paradise the bigger one coming back is going to accommodate for much much more and it's called the bride the mountain the city zion Mother Jerusalem above, it's going to come down. This is why Isaiah 66, 7-9 through 9 talks about, Can a nation be born in a day? Yet, she she's a, she's surprised. She's saying Zion. She's she's surprised that a nation is born in a day. And who reared these for me? Who are these, who are these full-grown people that are reared for me? And a whole nation that comes into me. Because the, the sons and daughters of the married, of the desolate one, will be more than the ground-based Jerusalem who was considered the married one. That's the that's her uh, fulfillment prophecy coming true for her. That's her benefit because she was the one that was supposed to have inhabitants, but Adam messed it up. So she's been barren this whole time to the point where she thinks, "Am I forgotten?" No, no, you're going to be fulfilled. <laughs> you're you're going to be a huge player in the story through the millennial reign. It's literally what we inherit, Isaiah fifty four seventeen. Right? It's our inheritance. So this is the beautiful story of. Garden of Eden that becomes our eternal inheritance, our home, the bride, the New Jerusalem. Uh, thank you, Latoya. Hopefully, it was a blessing to you. Guys, if you have any questions, put them in all caps and then drop them in the chat. That way uh, I can get to them. That way we can see them myself or the moderators can see them easily and we can try to answer them if you like. But yeah, hopefully, this was informative. Hopefully, it will help clear up misconceptions about Genesis where the garden came from, when it was planted in Eden, um, you know, why was Adam and Eve kicked out? But then like, there's an angel sent to guard the area, um, which, what is that? Why? Right. What does it mean? Well, because it was still there. It was on the ground. So imagine this guys, it was still on the ground to the flood. That means, and like I've done my, where's Enoch now video. He went into the garden to live for 300 years when it was still on the ground. This is why in Enoch 85, we see Noah run to the edge of the land and ask for Enoch's advice on something before Enoch died because it's still on the ground. Imagine 
being the Nephilim. Imagine flourishing and your fathers, the rebellious angels are still running around with you on the earth. And you know that there's these descendants of Adam that, uh, that are righteous, that are keeping the behavior of the creator and that one of their inhabitants actually went inside the garden to be with the other angels. And he's writing down the deeds of your condemnation because he's already declared your, your end, both for the rebellious watchers and the Nephilim, their children, as you read in first Enoch 15. Imagine their life, that whole time they had to live and exist and scheme, figure out ways to avoid the judgment that was promised for them. All the while they see the kingdom that's promised to man who's faithful, staring him in the face. The kingdom of God. So this is a, imagine the faith of the patriarchs before the flood. When they can literally walk up to proximity and look up and see the garden that Adam used to live in. You think they ever doubted the story of their grandfather, Adam? Not one time. You think it would increase their faith? That's why I love how the Father works. When sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. I know it's a statement from Romans 6, but the point is, I see that principle at play in the scriptures everywhere. So before the flood, the Father's grace, which is his, his showing, his outpouring to us, to enable us to keep the covenant, to give us favor that we don't deserve. That's exemplified with his kingdom still on the ground. Yes, they can't get in, but he's moving through the prophets and the lineage of Adam, the high priests, to, to communicate righteousness on the earth. Enoch is one of them, right? Mahalalel, Jared, all the way back, Seth, all the way back to Adam. He's moving through those people to, to communicate what right, right behavior should be. But yet there's a visible witness of grace right there in their purview, right there in their sight. Over the tops of the trees, they can still see the garden because it's walls. Who know how high it extended? I personally think it's it extended all the way up to heaven, personally. But the point is, you can see it. It's right there. So when you got all this in, incredible deception from the actual rebellious angels that are living among you and they're giants for their children, practicing all these new forms of idolatry and enticement and seduction and pharmakia and witchcraft and charms and enchantments and all this stuff that they're doing, trying to get people away from the commandments of God in a severe fashion, you have a severe example of God in your face with that kingdom still there. He's balancing out the scales. He does it all throughout history. This is why this 42, 42 months of the reign of Apollyon, the beast in revelation is countered by the 42 months of the new, of the two witnesses. The father always balances out to give people a choice. Anyway, I'm going to stop rambling, but it's to me that's a it's an incredible mental picture to think about all the patriarchs living with the garden still on their site. Looks like Westplay's music is asking, "What are the chords of the New Jerusalem, as mentioned in Isaiah 54:2, and is it similar to Second Samuel 22:6, the chords of Sheol surround me?" Um, well, that that met, that whole metaphor there in Isaiah 54. One through five that we read, or actually verse two and three, it was it was a metaphor of a tent. So when you're setting up a tent, you have the different cords, you know, that you would put up to stretch out its pegs, tie the, the tie your cords around the pegs to create, you know, it's after you set up the pillars of the tent. Depends on how you're making a tent. Don't don't imagine a modern day tent you buy at Walmart for like fifty dollars. These old school tents they would have, and they would they were traveling, they could disassemble and put back up as they 
could travel anywhere they wanted to. So they would have tent pegs that have tent poles. They would stretch out the tent over the poles. It was an act, you know, a whole industry basically. Paul made tents in Second Chronicles nine. So excuse me, Second Corinthians nine. So this this is just a metaphor that he's that they're using that language of the metaphor of the tent. And no, I don't think it's the same metaphor of Sheol that's being described uh, because that one's more of cord. The cords of Sheol is more of something that you're imprisoned in, which is why he. He talks about its its bars as well. So a little bit different applications. Yes, exactly. Uh, Abraham's soul. This is a verse that a lot of people overlook. Um, it is the Ren the Heavens passage of Isaiah 64, 1. Yes, and this is what happens. In order for the, the bigger Garden of Eden, which is New Jerusalem, to come down, you have to make the heavens different. This is what I explained in my New Heavens and New Earth video, how the word in the Greek for the word new heaven and new earth that John has seen in Revelation 21, 1 and 3 is the word kainos in the Greek, which means it's it's remade and in, in quality and innovation. It's not brand new as it never existed before. It means it did exist, but it's been renewed and it's been reworked, if you will, with innovation and quality. So it's the, the type of Greek word that is translated to the generic word new in English can really trip up a lot of people. That's why I made a whole video on it. It's called New Heaven, New Earth. Um, and I explained that in great detail. Okay, um, Josh Pasek is asking about Second Baruch 29 and verse 2. Let me go to it real quick, and I'll bring it up on screen for all of us to look at together. Okay, one second, guys. All right, so Second Baruch 29, verse 2. Well, let's just start with verse 1 at least, and let's see what, we're, what we got here. I don't have this book memorized like I do other ones, but it says, And he answered and said unto me, Whatever will then befall will befall the whole earth. Therefore, all who live with ex will experience them. For at that time I will protect only those who are found in those selfsame days in this land. And it shall come to pass, when all is accomplished, that was to come to pass in those parts, that the Messiah shall then begin to be revealed. Yeah, that's those who are resurrected, taken into the New Jerusalem. That's those who are protected, they avoid the wrath of the Lamb, as Isaiah 26, 19 through 21 explained. That is the huge Passover that we experience. The uh, true and ultimate fulfillment of Passover is, is when the Messiah is begins to be revealed, right? And that's why it says, And behemoth shall be revealed from his place, and Leviathan shall descend from the sea. Those two great sea mantras which I create on the fifth day of creation. This is all day of the Lord talk, my friend. This is all these events and descriptions that happen on the day of the Lord. The resurrection of the saints. Messiah is returning. This is why we meet him in the air. It is coming, First Thessalonians 4, verse 16. And this is also when Behemoth and Leviathan appear and the angels have to kill him. Um, this is, we actually, I tell you what, brother, go check out our Honor King season two. Let me go find the video link for you real quick. And I'll drop this in the, the uh, I'll drop this in the, in the chat for you to look at. This is in season two of Honor of Kings. We actually go over all these passages that you're reading in this video I'm going to share. Uh, we'll review Leviathan. So let me just one second. I'm gonna put something for you. And imagine, you know, oh wait, that's not the right video. One second. Imagine, you know, an hour and a half of us just dissecting this. So if you want something to watch afterward after this video, this will be great. Great for you. We had our brothers from Flat Out Insights come on to this episode and um, watch it and dissect it with us. And so it's it was a pretty fun episode we got to do. It was episode five of season two. Okay. 
All right, so I dropped it in the chat. Go check that out when you have a chance. Yes, yes, the land of Israel is the New Jerusalem, bro. That's the inheritance of Israel is the land. And it's not talking about the land literally in the in in Israel of his day. And if because remember, in he comes to fight those who are attacking Israel and the evil that are within Israel on the day of the Lord. So there's a lot of descriptions there, but you're you have to look at the previous context where he's talking about the resurrection, the things that are corruptible and incorruptible. So there's there's a lot going on there, but it even talks about it in the very next chapter, in chapter 30 of Second Baruch. He goes on to talk about the resurrection in greater detail. So remember, Israel is resurrected on the day of the Lord and taking to the land of Israel, the true land of Israel, not the one on the ground, but the true land of Israel, which is the inheritance of Israel, the New Jerusalem. So yeah, this is this is why understanding the gospel of the kingdom is so important, brother. You get tripped up with people trying to tell you that the ground-based land of Israel is is the fulfillment of prophecy. And, and now Abraham had to be corrected of that. Second, Baruch had to be corrected of that during the days of Jeremiah. Um, you know, there's so there, this is a huge misconception by people that push Judaism because they want they want their relevance to be the fulfillment of some of these prophecies, but it's not. It's the kingdom of heaven above that's coming down. The ground-based Israel and all of its land areas are going to be burned with fire. So that's, yeah. Yeah. You just have to stick with me, brother. I know you, you're kind of new to the channel, but we go over the gospel of the kingdom in great detail. And um, that's that's just one uh, one facet of it that takes some unlearning the lies that have been told to us about that topic. All right, guys. Um, funky Monkey Painting Nick is asking, I'm looking to buy the Apocrypha books. Is there a specific translation or edition you suggest? Um, honestly, no, because there's there's some out there that are pretty bad. So I would say, man, but as far as like I specifically suggest, and it also depend, depends on what you're defining as Apocrypha, because I don't know how much you know about that word. Um, there's sometimes people we'll take books like second Ezra's and second Baruch's and the books we looked at tonight. And they think those are apocrypha, but they're not They're The church used to consider them deuterocanonical. So there, I don't know your familiarity with some of these terms, but I would just say, um, look up the 14 books that were removed from our Bible. Check those out. We have them in mostly in English translations, uh, Bible software like Bible hub or Bible gateway. will have the, the RSV and the King James versions of those 14 books, uh, still available on their sites. And uh, that's 14 to look at. Then I also would suggest like um, the the three translations of R.H. Charles, which are the Book of First Enoch, the Book of Jubilees, and the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs. Uh, those are great. Those are great translations, in my opinion. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that's a good starting place because that's 17 books for you to start with. <laughs> That'll keep you busy for a while, brother. The word made flesh is kind of asking the same question. Guys, please remember to put your questions in all caps. That way we can see them quickly. I, I could have easily just uh, uh, went over this question, but I could have missed this question, um, but I'm glad I saw it. So unfortunately, there's not that I know of. If anyone does know, of, put it in the comments, but I don't know of a specific app or website that has all the apocryphal books that we talk about on this channel and we do. Uh, dissect on honor of kings and then i also use as references and explain history of them to you um, i don't know if, i know like i just mentioned you know bible gateway uh, bible hub i believe they have the 14 books that were removed from our american bible 
but they don't have Jubilees. They don't have Enoch. They don't have the Apocalypse of Abraham. They don't have the Testament 12. Excuse me. They don't have the Testament 12 patriarchs. So you definitely, um, it's the, the enemy has not made it easy. So you, you it takes some, some diligence on our part to go out and search these things out. But um, there is, and I don't want to like, I would be very weary, very careful of sites like pseudopigrapha.com because they have a ton of Gnostic material on there that I would never recommend ever. So again, guys, here's what I would say. Get familiar with the first five books of your American Bible first. If get intimately familiar with Genesis through Deuteronomy, and I promise you, you'll have a strong foundation for discerning when you start reading apocryphal books, it'll help you discern what's legit and what's not. If you understand God's behavior that's detailed for us in those first five books in great detail, and if you and if you get bored and you want to branch out, then go learn Isaiah, right? Because you're also seeing prophecy about the, the day of the Lord and all these key events I'm talking about, which are made possible and are a fulfillment of his behavior as detailed by Genesis to Deuteronomy. If you get intimately familiar with those, you'll understand the New Testament better. You'll understand the prophets in the Old Testament better. You'll understand the Gospels better. All my New New Testament context for pastors videos, you'll you'll follow along those much better. Um, and then you'll you know then you can easily pick up an apocryphal or a you know pseudo pseudopigraphal book, and you'll be able to see should this have been scripture or not, right? Because remember, men made that choice at some point, not God. God never says in any of his words, I want these books to be my holy scripture. That's just a bunch of men upon, and they made, made those decisions based upon what they understood. So this is why the canonization process is such, such a mislead for people that are genuinely trying to figure out scripture and know the father's word and, and the word given to his prophets, because they're like, you know, they trusting some dude from, you know, the 15th century that, was a who was he truly did he truly understand the you know the book of jubilees because if he does if he didn't that makes me question whether he understands leviticus and and the book of hebrews because if, if you understand those two books jubilees is like a cakewalk so but to, so uh, this group of men that were like, yeah, we got this Bible. We want to keep it. But we're going to exclude books like Jubilees and First Enoch. I'm sitting there going, I don't think you understood the books that you included. Because they, they line up perfectly. <laughs> if you understand the, the behavior of God as detailed out in Genesis to Deuteronomy. So I know it's probably not the answer you're looking for, brother. And it's a little longer than you probably you asked, but I, I apologize. But this is, I guess it's more of a general admonition to anyone listening or watching. The reason you see us dissect, we have an entire show, guys. It's called Honor of Kings, and we're starting season three soon. The reason you see us do that show is because we've studied the Bible first. And this is where I've, I've seen other online teachers and pastors make this complaint that, oh, people are getting off in these apocryphal books, and they're, you know, they're getting away from stuff that's not scripture. And I'm just like, I've invited you onto my show, but I've never heard back from you where we can dissect these in front of everyone together. And we can look at the American canon of 66 that you think is the only word of God, even though that wasn't even around uh, 180, 140 years ago. But we can look at those books and see what lines up and what's not. But you'll see a lot of discouragement from people out there because they assume I don't know the Bible and that I'm 
prematurely jumping into books that are considered apocryphal or deuterocanonical. But that's a bad assumption on their part. I've spent many, many, many years reading the Bible to understand it. This is why we do all these videos. And then, therefore, I I feel competent to be able to read these apocryphal books and show you, oh, boom, that's Scripture, that's Deuteronomy, that's Exodus, that's Leviticus, that's Isaiah. You know what I'm saying? Just immediately jump in there. And, and this is what we do with you watching on Honor of Kings. So if you're new to the channel and you've never seen um, our shows, we've got two full seasons for you to go check out. And they're in the playlists. So I think you'd be greatly uh, blessed by them because – the reason we decided to format it like that was because we wanted to help people walk through some of these apocryphal books and not fall into danger. And so we're we're showing you all the scriptural foundation of where these ideas are coming from in these apocryphal books to help you walk through this testing process of whether or not you should consider this as scripture that you might, you know, put in your reading or not. So it's it's um yeah, I'm going on too far too much about it, but hopefully that's something to consider, brother. Uh, Christina B, I, I don't know the documentary. I haven't seen the documentary that you're talking about. I'm sorry, but the church's definition of the, she's asking, what are your thoughts on the church's definition of the gospel? Unfortunately, it depends on which church you're talking. There's a lot of denominations out there that teach some wonky stuff. Um, but the general idea of the, what they think is the gospel is simply the life, death and, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is a part of, it's definitely good. That's what the word gospel means is good news. So yeah, that, that is, you know, it's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 3, I believe. And yeah, that's that's the good news, 100%. It's it's the, the crux of how Yeshua got his priesthood, but it's not the end of the story. There's more good news to come, and that's the day of the Lord. That's the second coming of, of Yeshua uh, when he comes back to fulfill the gospel of the kingdom, which is what we went over last night. So if you didn't check out last night, go check that out, because that word has the word gospel in it too, right? And it's what Yeshua preached. Yeshua very rarely talked about his life, death, and resurrection. He talked about the gospel of the kingdom everywhere he went. So, yes, the, the generic church's definition of the gospel, yes, it's still good news. It's still considered gospel. Um, there's more to it, though, and that's why we always go back to Yeshua's words. We, we go back to the Messiah's words. We don't go off of some Baptist pastor who's claiming once saved, always saved. So, um once saved, always saved is a little bit, you know, separate idea of the actual definition of the gospel. That's more of like an idea of um, how how does God view you in light of your repentance? Um, and and some some people preach that you just give lip service. You, Romans ten nine, you know, you confess your mouth, believe in your heart, you're saved, and that you can never be unsaved at that point, no matter what you do after that. And I strongly disagree with that, right? Because we have all this language about how we'll be judged by our deeds and we're standing before Yeshua at judgment to be judged by our deeds and that um uh, we must endure to the end and this is why hebrews 6 has an entire chapter warning people against falling away from the faith because those are people who did not endure to the end and so that's where you know there's that the whole one saved always says man that it's if you look deep into why they say that it's built upon other doctrines that come out of certain types of seminaries that are wholly unscriptural, like completely out of context to scripture and the definitions of grace and repentance and all this stuff. So just uh, that's a super loaded, I super loaded question. I know you didn't ask intentionally like that, but I'm just saying that takes some, some unpacking. Unfortunately, I don't have all the time to do that tonight. That's probably a, probably, it's probably a good idea for a podcast in the future though. May attack something like that. That would be our answering pastor series. Thank you for the suggestion though.
Um, Sylvia, no one knows. I wish we did, sister. No one knows how big the land was. I, I don't think it was as big as between the Nile and the Euphrates. I don't think it was because that's the land promised Abraham. Uh, I think it was much smaller than that. Um, I personally think that it was um, very possibly, you know, like almost the size of from, I'd say like, uh, it's hard to, it's hard to say sister. I, I mean, I would kind of think in something like 300 square miles, uh, but that's just a complete, complete guess. Uh, just, and that's just based off of certain ideas and um, things in scripture. It's not that I, I don't have anything prepared to show right now, but that's just a crude, crude guess, but much smaller than 1500 miles squared. Uh, Mode is asking, it sounds like the New Jerusalem is sentient. Is this true? Uh, it's spoken of with, with what's what's called anthropomorphic language, meaning that you're giving descriptions of it, um, of an inanimate object as if it's animate, as if it's alive. And scripture does this all the time, but specifically about the bride, it does it a lot. Um, I don't think it's it's sentient, no. Um, I think that it's uh, it's just spoken of as if it is if that makes any sense it's called anthropomorphic language it's a literary device that that's used in scripture and and all types of writing so all right looks like Bear has a question is saved the same as eternal life being delivered is not the same as entering life being delivered again it have to define how you're defining saved and and depends on the pastor you talk to there it's how they're defining the word saved but i would say personally the literal definition of being saved according to its fulfillment by Jesus, your high priest who resurrects you, is eternal life. Um, the delivered part is that you're delivered from death, meaning you're redeemed. And this is why Psalm 49, 14 and 15 talks about redeeming us from Sheol. Also, uh, Psalm 16, 10, David's prayer, that he knows that his soul will be redeemed uh, from Sheol. Because that is the promise of the covenant, is that... Um, that the, the father will redeem our souls from Sheol. And he does that through the mechanism of his son's priesthood, which is why Yeshua enters into this eternal priesthood for us and is the becomes our high priest. And Revelation 3, 5, he calls our names out before the father on the day of the Lord and resurrects our soul back into perfected, awesome, eternal bodies. And it's Ezekiel 37, you know, uh, 11 through 14, breaking down that promise as well. And this is the idea of you're delivered from death into life. You're redeemed from, you know, like, like the terminology of being redeemed, that someone paid a price to get you just like you in Leviticus 27, you would redeem people that were donated for service at the temple. Um, you would, you re, our souls are redeemed from Sheol and then we're, we're taken into eternal life in the new Jerusalem. So the conversion moment is the metaphoric description that's often used in churches as a bumper sticker phrase to say that someone's saved is they had a moment of conversion where they decided to repent to their bad behavior and their bad heart. And they're trying to adopt a better, better behavior and a better heart. And that's when they'll say, Oh, you, you had an altar call moment or you got saved, but that's the metaphoric kind of colloquial term used in the United States for getting saved. But the literal definitions in scripture is when you're resurrected, taken to Jerusalem. Hopefully that's a good answer for you, brother.
uh, Latoya is asking about uh, monikers. She says, "Do you think a church must be called denomination, a Baptist, Pentecostal, Adventist, etc.?" No, no. It's Ephesians four, where it's one body, one Lord, one Spirit, one God of all, one Father. It's we're supposed to be one body. We're not supposed to be a whole bunch of branches of um, of division that all disagree with each other. The reason why those denominations have those different names is because they have slightly different beliefs on topics within scripture, which means somebody has to be wrong, right? So you have what's called unsound doctrine that's permeating because you have misunderstanding. So this is where I love the father's mercy to us is because he still works through us, even though we're fragmented in thousands of different denominations in the United States. And, ha and this has been a, a problem that's grown over like two, 300 years because people come along, they don't know their Bible very well, but they get excited about wanting to serve Jesus because they had a radical moment where their heart was changed and they felt it in their feels, right? They felt that tingle and they wanted to go win the world for Christ. And that is a valid and honorable feeling that people have, but they haven't taken the time to learn sound doctrine yet. So that zeal, that excitement will carry them off to create a church or a following or a movement, and they segment off because they then run into um, someone else like themselves, yet that you know they ran into someone else that got excited four years earlier, started their own following, and then suddenly both neither one of them truly know the Bible yet, right? But they know key passages that gave them excitement and hope, but they truly don't know the scriptures. So then those two people butt heads and they separate, both have their own followings, and here we are with thousands of denominations in 2020. Um, thousands of denominations with such unsound doctrine that they're scared to their core, sitting in their houses, refusing to meet over stuff that is being uh, deceived and pushed upon them through deception that they can't see through. So it's so frustrating. Take hope, guys. Take hope. Your father gave you an immune system. You've been using it this whole time. He, he gave you health. Just follow his diet obey his behavior. He gave you health guys. Um, Sean M is saying, do you go over Hebrews eight, one, eight through 13, which supposedly makes some of the commandments obsolete? Uh, yes, you must be new to the channel, brother. We go over it um, a lot and a whole bunch of different places. And, and it doesn't make it up. If actually, if you look at verse uh, Hebrews eight, 13, it actually says uh, growing old or be, or waxing old, which is means it's not yet. It's going to happen in the future, right? It's, it's on a process of happening to be obsolete, but it's not obsolete yet. In fact, the sacrifice is being mentioned in the verses 11 and 12 of Hebrews chapter 8, which talks it's repeating the promise of Jeremiah 31 verses 33 and 34 is when you get this new heart with these commandments written on it. And that happens at the resurrection because the qualifiers of that is that you don't have to learn the law of God anymore. You know it. All of you know it. You don't have to teach your brethren the law of God anymore because you already know it and he already knows it. That's the promise being repeated from Jeremiah 31 in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 11 and 12. So this is why it talks about that that's coming. That's the promise. Those are not waxing old. They're, they're not obsolete. And it's the covenant of man that's mortal is the one that you have to die to get to the resurrection, right? Where you get that promise from Jeremiah 31 uh, that's being repeated in Hebrews 11, 8, 11 and 12. So um, this is why it's... I've done an entire video, my friend, if you want to go check it out, let me grab the playlist for you. I'll drop in the chat and it's called, are you in the new covenant? And we go over this in great detail with a lot of scriptures from the old and new Testament. Let me see if I can find it for you real quick. 
In fact, my buddy Ken Heidebrecht, he joined me. Guys, if you haven't already gone and signed up for Ken Heidebrecht's channel, please go do so. Uh, he's got awesome content. You'll be blessed by it. And um, let me find this. It was in our Road to Rescue series. If I can find it. Where in the world? There it is. All right, so this will be part one, but it's uh, it'll connect you to parts two and three. We review all these scriptures you're asking about. So this is a specific series I've done for you. Let me drop it in the in the chat. Okay, there you go, Sean. I'll drop it in the chat for you, brother. I think you'll enjoy it. Or at least you'll get mad at me because you don't like it. But either way, it'll be something for you to test. Or it looks like oh, that was at somebody else. That's not to me. Uh, Tiago is asking about what does scripture say about salvation and Torah keeping for people with mental illness? I don't know, brother. I don't know. I think the Father knows our hearts, right? Um, he knows all of our thoughts and tents of the heart. He knows all of our actions. That means he's a, he's a righteous and fair judge through his son. So he's going to judge us accordingly. Whatever circumstances you have in life and whatever parameters or obstacles that you're working within, how much temptation you've been around, uh, how much uh, physical and mental disability you, you, you're working with, like, you know, he's, his goal is to make everyone completely whole at the resurrection. And uh, we're suffering extended consequences from evil in this life. So people born with a mental illness, um, they're doing their best. I mean, I guess if they're trying to, you know, if they're trying to, you know, live out what they think is salvation and they're doing their best according to what their body and mind lets them do, I think the father's going to judge them accordingly. I mean, he's, he's fair with everybody. He's, he's righteous. Uh, should, fair is probably sometimes a malleable word. Uh, depends on the user, but I would say the father's a righteous judge and he's also merciful. So I think he knows what people are dealing with when they suffer with physical and mental disability. In fact, I used to know a gentleman that uh, he was the head, like the, the head leader of the, of the Bible school that I went to. And he, he talked about how he would pray for people with mental disabilities. And he was just asking God to heal them. And there was a guy at a, I think he said it was a local McDonald's that he was uh he had a mental handicap and he was you know like the janitor at the mcdonald's and he said the guy always had a great attitude um this is the director of the bible school talking about the employee at mcdonald's that he watched the employee who had a mental handicap who, who was cleaning the the restaurant inside the mcdonald's he said that employee had a great attitude and just a great smile but he was clearly handicapped and he would pray for him just saying, father, I've been, you know, I've, I've seen this guy for years here. Why? I, I want you to heal him. Why are you not healing him? And the, now take it for what you will take it with a grain of salt. But this director of the Bible school claims that the father answered him in his heart and his mind saying to him, I've given him what I've decided to give him. And he's happy. You should work on you fulfilling what I've given you and you be happy. So what we perceive as quality of life may not be the same in the mind of others, but I ultimately though, the father knows what's going on and he's going to judge everybody appropriately. So I would err on the side of the father, obviously being loving as you would 
being unfair and unrighteous. Hopefully that's a decent answer for you, brother. Uh, Corey Fowler is asking, have you considered asking you for your spiritual gifts or insight back regarding your earlier years? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's actually, I think I remember if you're talking about the story I was telling when I was like 21 or 22. Um, yeah, it's, it's come and gone, but as far as like the, the end of that story where I tell it, where I explain that I actually asked God to turn it down because it, it was affecting how I did my everyday life to the point where I, it, it was not, it, I didn't know how to handle it. You know, I had no one to, to walk me through it. I had nothing to no no counsel of any kind from any older believers that had any idea. I didn't know who I could talk to about it. It seemed crazy to me. I was still struggling with the reality of what was I was experiencing. So I didn't really, I didn't want to, um, I just thought I needed to, you know, be normal. I thought I needed to go get a lot. I went off and became a financial planner for several years and I, you know, I got married, um, and I had a child and I was, you know, failing at, at different things in life and succeeding at others. And I was in my twenties, you know, and I'm just, I was still full of spit and fire and I just had no clue what I was doing, you know? And so I was still learning about the Bible and I just, so I never asked to pursue those again. Um, if, but the coolness, the cool thing about gifts of the spirit is that if, you know, you're, you're, discipling after Yeshua, you believe that he's given you the deposit of the spirit. And because of the priesthood of Yeshua, he can give you the spirit as he wills. So he can always give that back to me if he chooses to for a purpose. And I would, you know, that was my understanding and my maturity as I learned more about the gifts of the spirit, which was, oh, by the way, guys, this is going to be an upcoming podcast here in a couple of weeks I'm working on is going to be about the gifts of the spirit. But as I learned more about them and more about the word and see them in action in the word and realized, you know, a lot of these concepts you hear me talking about, I started to realize, like, I don't seek that kind of thing as much anymore um, because I found a whole lot of other ways to get people's attention that doesn't require them being, you know, partially freaked out. <laughs> right. And so, um, and I can actually explain scripture to them now once I got their attention as opposed to just saying, I don't know where that information came from. The Lord told me I have a good day. And then, you know what I'm saying? So instead of like just blindly throwing out seeds of faith to people, like I can actually come in. So, and Lord willing, as I explain the scriptures to them, let the Holy spirit watered in their hearts in a deeper root. And that's, that's been my prayer ever since then is so to me, um, you know, this, this idea of the gift of teaching is what I've prayed for as opposed to gifts of word of knowledge or gifts of healing or gifts of, you know, miracles or anything like that. Um, cause those seem like they're fascinating, but boy, you've got to know how to handle that kind of stuff. Um, so that's where I'd prayed more to be able to understand his word and teach it to others. And that's what you see me doing now. So it's not like I've left pursuing what he has for me. I've actually just pursued it in a little bit different way, I guess. Um, okay. I'm looking for a few more questions real quick.
Deanna Clark is asking about Isaiah 66, 24, and I'll bring this up on screen for people to, to look and watch with us as we go over this particular passage. And uh, by the way, yes, the passage um, is 100% millennial reign, day of the Lord concepts, return of Christ, um, all the all the day of the Lord stuff. So this is why in the previous verses, you're going to have him talking about, um, well, let's go here. The the time is coming to gathering all the nations. I'm sorry, I'm not putting it on screen. I'm sorry, Deanna. Okay. So this is why you have in the same chapter before you get to verse 24, like verses like number 18 and, and down where he talks about the time that's coming to gather all the nations and all the different people that speak different languages. That's your sheep and goats judgment, which is the start of millennial reign. And they shall come and see my glory. Guess what his glory is? It's the new Jerusalem. It's the bride. And he says, I will set a sign among them and I will send survivors from them to the nations. That's so they're going to have survivors among them. Those who are immediately coming, they're going to go and they're going to gather people from the far reaches. Um, and this is why he says, they'll go out to the distant coastlands, people that have neither heard of my fame nor seen my glory. And they will declare my glory among the nations that shall bring all their brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord. And um, and I think that the, that it's literal that it's talking about the horses, chariots, and litters, and mules, and camels is because after the events of the day of the Lord, roads are messed up, can't use a car. In fact, I think, in my opinion, this is a little bit of conjecture, popping open the ferment's going to gonna do an EMP blast across the whole world that's going to disable electronics. Um, but because there's electromagnetic frequencies going on in the actual firmament itself. So that's just a little bit of speculation. And then this is why he says, you know, he's taking some for priests and for Levites during that time. And, uh, and so then he goes on to explain about how they're all going to come before him from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath. Um, so this is even telling you that the new moon feasts are kept in the millennial reign, as well as all the Sabbaths of Leviticus 23, all the feasts of the Lord. That's beautiful. And then he goes on to explain, they'll go forth and look on the corpses of the men who've transgressed against me, for their worms will not die and their fire will not be quenched. They'll be an abhorrence to all mankind. So the people that are coming to the day, to the um, uh, to Jerusalem, they're going to go and they're going to look at the corpses of the men, meaning that all like the city is going to sit down. If you guys remember, there's a lot of details that go into this. But remember, the angels come with Yeshua and Yeshua's he's not like Dr. Manhattan, you know, from um uh, the watchman, right? He can't just multiply himself and be in a thousand different places at once. So Yeshua is a real person. He's a, a return, a resurrected into eternal body. He's a real person. He doesn't have comic book Gnostic powers. Like he can dupl duplicate himself. Like, uh, like what's the guy name from the Avengers? Um, I can't think of his name, the magician from the Avengers. So he can't duplicate himself, right? So he, he's got all these angels with him to go out and fight all the millions of people that are trying to fight him. So that's going to be, they're clearing out the borders of the land promised Abraham, the new Jerusalem's borders, but they're still going to be fighting people outside those borders too. So unfortunately, the harsh reality of some of this is that outside of the new Jerusalem, there will be bodies that will still be on the ground that will be slain by angels or by just the events of the day of the Lord. Because they're in, in 2 Ezra 13 and other places, it even talks about the, the armies that have assembled to fight Yeshua even start turning to fight themselves because of the confusion that's caused when they see he and the angels coming back through the sky. So everything inside the boundaries where the New Jerusalem is going to sit is burned with fire and cleansed, but there's going to be some peripheral area outside of it where there'll still be corpses of people um, that had 
met their end from an angel or from other, you know, all the cities being destroyed on the day of the Lord and all that stuff. So as the people from all across the planet of the earth are gathered to the city, they're unfortunately going to be coming through people that faced the wrath of the lamb and didn't survive. So I hope that's a, a decent answer for you. But as far as the specific, this is, this is what's called an idiomatic phrase, and it's used in, in scripture often where it says, the worm will not die, the fire will not be quenched. That's explaining, that's an idiomatic phrase saying that they're not going to be resurrected. No one's going to put out the fire. It means they're not going to be saved. Their bodies are dead. Um, they, I mean, they're not going to be resurrected in this moment. Obviously, everyone's resurrected by the end uh, with the second resurrection. But what it's explaining is that it's an idiomatic phrase saying no one can save them. They're dead. No one's going to bring them, raise them back up. They're, uh, they're an abhorrence to mankind because they represent the problem um, that was plaguing the earth which was what we see in Revelation 11, 11 through 15, is that the, the, the seventh trumpet blows and the angels are praising the Father because he's taking his great power, which is Yeshua and the angels, and he's going to go forth and begin to reign upon the earth so that peace can come to the earth. But as they do that, it says he's come to destroy those who are destroying the earth. That's in Revelation 11, verses uh, 11 through 15, I believe. So just go read that whole passage because it's given. This is why we talk about the kings of the earth all the time. These are the enemies that fight with the beast and Satan to try to to try to stop Yeshua and the angels from bringing down the city of God. So the them and all the armies that help them, they're they're an abhorrence to mankind. Those are the people that were plaguing the earth with destruction, war, disease, pestilence, and um, and trying to oppress mankind and destroy the earth at the same time. So. That's part of the gospel of the kingdom, as I explained last night. Yeshua comes and removes those people as well. So hopefully that's a well-rounded, thorough answer for you. I try to address as much of it as I could. All right, I'll take a couple more quick questions, and then we'll probably have to call tonight. Uh, Bill L is asking about when is the moon and Enoch, uh, I think it's chapter 73 explains it to you. It's a sliver. It's after it goes dark and then it starts to, I think it's called waning. It starts to wane again. Um, where it's the first sliver on it after it's been completely dark and it starts to light up again. That's what's called the new moon. Okay. Looking for another quick question. All right. This is, these are uh, tough questions, guys. Sometimes we get really tough questions, but Diesel Blood is asking um, a question that many of us in our family have to deal with. And heart goes out to you, Diesel Bud. Um, he's asking, my daughter has completely rejected me and my new faith. If she doesn't make it to the kingdom, and I do, am I going to mourn her or not remember her? You will remember your life. I'm going to let you know that right now. How you, uh, how you handle it is going to be, you're going to handle it like, like it's mentioned in Ephesians, you're going to handle it with the mind of Christ. So you're going to have emotional capacity that's perfected. You're going to have a maturity in your heart and mind because you have this new body and this new heart at the resurrection that has God's behavior, his laws emblazoned in your heart so that you do them perpetually, which means inherently you have a different level of, of emotional capacity and emotional ability. Think about the angels. Think about how much they have to deal with and far as bringing justice to the to the wicked, how, how they have to protect different people as they're sent out in different times. Um, and they have to deal witness and deal with victories and loss. And 
they consider themselves our brethren, according to Revelation, was it 19? So um, you, this, but they can handle it. They can handle the capacity. This is, uh, I'm, in no way would we ever make light of a personal family member, especially I have, I have a son and I would, you know, it's my prayer that he, that he picks up my stud and, you know, and develops a fascination with the scriptures as well and wants to learn them and, and comes to be a strong disciple of Jesus as well. That's my prayer for him as well, but it doesn't always happen in our timing. And this is where, um, you know, if, if nothing else, I mean, I don't think I, I would not definitely, and I'm not saying you are, I just want to say this love and encouragement. I would definitely not take a defeatist's mentality to think that she's going to reject it forever. Many times children go through this phase of rejecting what their parents do and like, right. They want to, they think that they're cool by having separate interests, separate likes. You, you know, this I'm sure doesn't mean she's gonna reject it forever. My wife is living proof of this, right? Her father tried to talk to her about God and Jesus for most of her life. And it wasn't until she was in her what late twenties that she actually have a moment with Jesus. And up until that point, she used to give her father hell because she would mock his faith. She was an avowed atheist. She thought she was smarter than all that. She thought Christianity was stupid. Go watch my wife's testimony on my channel. And she, uh, she might be an incredible maybe video for your daughter to watch at some point um, or even to be maybe playing in the back room. If your daughter's walking through the, through the room or something, you know, but um, because she has a strong, my wife has a strong testimony of, you know, being a, a very rebellious, very stubborn, very obstinate atheist for a long time in her life. And then having a moment where Jesus just broke it all in like one night, just broke through and changed her life. So um, I, you will remember your life at the resurrection. This is why you'll be judged off of your deeds. You'll have a different emotional capacity to handle things that we consider detrimentally heartbreaking right now. So I just want to encourage you, but I'm also going to be hundred percent honest with you. And hopefully um, my wife's testimony will be a source of, of help to you if possible. So heart goes out to you, bud. Uh, last question, guys. Scott, the Dem Watcher is asking a huge last question. She asks, what is your position on predestination? Uh, my, my position is that uh, it's a very, very tricky topic. It's a very tricky topic. Trick, trick, tricky. All right. So no matter what I'm going to say, people are going to be upset. So I'll just say it anyway, because I upset people every day, every week, every time I talk about scripture. So predestination is a situation where the father your life is not is not mapped out to the point where you have no control he gave you free will you're judged off of your deeds because you do have control he's just in a unique position of knowing the end from the beginning um as, as isaiah 42 talks about i Honestly, I can't tell it. There's no magic scripture, which is why it's such a debate and has been for a long time. There's no magic scripture that goes and says, this is how the father knows how things will happen. But, but just because he, but, but by knowing how those things will happen, it will not change or affect anything. So it's almost like, think, I think, I think predestination gets sold to us in the wrong perception in the wrong window. Right, we have a we have a unique view of this pre predestination idea to think that 
the father is unfair because some are appointed to, to be resurrected to eternal life and some are not. So therefore he must be unfair. How about we look at it from a perspective that isn't already pinning him against the wall for evil behavior, because that's not his, his behavior in scripture. It's loving behavior, merciful and kind. How about we look at it like the whole purpose of him judging us off of our deeds is based upon the fact that we do have free will to choose right or wrong. In our life, as we read from Second Ezra or Second Baruch tonight, in our life, he gives us the opportunity and tells us the straightway commandment to all who've been born, which is the idea that to, to do righteousness, to do his behavior. Paul even talks about it being written on our hearts, right? So just because he knows the end from the beginning doesn't mean that he has he has prejudicially chosen a bad ending for you or for anyone since you don't know what your ending is. In fact, all along the way, he's told you, this is how you get eternal life. This is how you have a good ending. Follow my behavior. In fact, I've even written it on the conscience of your heart. Do what you feel is right. That's good and right. And by the way, in case you ever struggle with deception about what is good and right, and you have internal conflict in your heart because you're deceived, I've written it down and repeated it through the prophets for centuries. It's available in this book. That's the most widely known sold book in all the world and has been for decades and decades and decades. And everyone has about four in their house. I have, I have all these instructions, this literature in your face everywhere all the time. So just in case you struggle to follow my law that I've actually written in your conscience, I've written it down for you to learn and to do and to practice. And if you do that, I'll give you eternal life as he promises in Leviticus 18, four and five. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to even give you prophecy to tell you what's going to happen in the future so that you have more motivation to do what's right. And I'm going to give you further prophecy to explain to you that I will resurrect those people who do what's right. But ultimately, I can't make you do what's right. I can just give you all these helpful, helpful uh, tools to get to that good end result at the end of your life. But it's still up to you because otherwise, if he didn't give you choice, and, you're, and the way people push predestination truly was the way that God designed it, then he would have no reason to encourage you to do his behavior. He would not tell us through his prophets that this is the whole duty of man, that we keep his commandments in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. He would not give us the general admonition in Revelation twenty two fourteen that anyone who wants to access to the tree of life needs to keep the commandments. You see what I mean? He wouldn't send us all the prophets. He wouldn't have sent his son to die for those who need eternal life if it was already predestined for them, because then they would have no choice but to have eternal life. They wouldn't be, need to be redeemed because you can't judge them for something they had no control over. So I guess the biggest problem with predestination is the way it's framed and pushed because it makes God out to be a tyrant, but that's, that's not what he is. And that's not what his word says. So, um, I, I wish it was a more succinct answer, but I think the, the question in itself, and it's not your question originally, it's a question that we've all heard asked before. I think the question itself carries with it a loaded perception uh, or presupposition, a loaded idea um, that is completely askew to the nature and character of God. So instead, let's redefine this idea of predestination through what we do see in Scripture, how God has explained who he is and what he offers us and how he loves us and how he is a father who gives us good gifts 
and uh, wants to protect us and see us do what's right. But ultimately, because he loves us so much, he can't control us. That's why he gave us free will. And consequently, that's what we're judged upon. So thanks for enduring the long-winded answer, but that's that's the best I got on that topic. All right, guys. Um, I appreciate everyone being here and joining me tonight. Um, this is this is always so much fun. And uh, I just, I really think that, I'm thankful that you guys want to come study scripture with me. And as always, please uh, subscribe to Kingdom Cast and subscribe to this channel if you haven't already. So it's our main channel's Kingdom in Context, our backup channel's Kingdom Cast. And then um, also like this video and share it with, you, with your peoples on social media if it blessed you in some way. So thank you guys, and we hope to see you tomorrow night.